This is an incredible Torah portion, isn't it? It starts at 12 of Genesis and goes to 17. Yes, all about Avraham, first Avram. Uh, never in a million years did I think that I would end up being a Bar Avraham, right? A son of Avraham. Incredible. So you have an outline in front of you. Uh, I taught three courses this week. I'm a postmenopausal man, which means we got to go with script. Okay, can you, can you survive it? You'll actually get a lot out of it if you follow along with me. So I want to start with some words about our study of Bereshit, Genesis, this year. Hasn't it been wonderful? Yes. And isn't it great to sit under a rabbi teacher, Howard Silverman, who pays close attention to the text and makes connections to all of the books of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, and then speaks to the relevance of the text for our 21st century situation. And if we treat the Word of God as the living and abiding Word of God, we never need to sit around and make up applications about the text. What's relevant from that text for our time period will be made clear to us by God's Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. So here then, I wish to remind us to be generous and faithful in our regular giving, because when Shaul to the Jews... Paulos, Paul to the Gentiles, said elders who provide effective leadership must be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard in speaking and teaching like he does. This was said in 1 Timothy uh, 5.17. Double honor there meant respect and adequate financial remuneration. Now that said, I want to uh, emphasize how wondrous a book, Bereshit, is in the Hebrew when understood on its own terms, according to both its content and its structure. Not only what it says, but how it says it is a thing of great beauty and profound learning for living. And we're very blessed to have a congregational leader who, like the best scholars of the Tanakh, is indebted to the detailed observational Bible study skills of John Salehammer, Sage of Blessed Memory died just uh, last year, 2017. Um, when I was talking with Howard this week, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm rereading Salehammer. He goes, oh, didn't he have insight into the text of Genesis like none other? Yes. And so he wrote this book called The Pentateuch as Narrative. Oh, you need to read it three times just to get the first time right. Uh, it's wonderful and other excellent books, but many of the insights that I highlight today are made with great indebtedness to him. Okay, so now I want to put some footnotes. You know how it goes, right? Howard says, it's, it's Genesis 12. I said, well, I'll have to start in one. He said, of course you will. Yeah. So some footnotes to our study of Bereshit and some words about chapter 12 of today's Torah passage. So first, to read Genesis on its own terms, we must understand Genesis as the introduction to the Torah in particular and the Tanakh in general. Second, because Genesis on its own terms is so important to our understanding of the Torah, the Tanakh, and even the New Covenant Scriptures all the way through and including Revelation, which is back to Eden, face-to-face -face relationship with God, we must follow the advice of T. Desmond Alexander and make sure that we do not allow Genesis 1 through 3 to be hijacked 
by those who are exclusively concerned with the endless debate between creation and science. That topic we take up in solid apologetics courses by persons like Eric Chabot. In sound biblical studies, we focus on the text itself on its own terms and what it was intended to show and teach us. And you can trust me when I say that every book of the Bible is wholly capable of being defended as genius in both its content and structure, what it says and how it says it, when heard on its own terms, held to its own standards for when it was written. And this is especially true for Genesis 1 through 3 in particular. In fact, have we ever realized that the opening story of Adam and Eve, Adam and her actual name is Chava, huh? Chava, get to Eve? Wow. Was strategically designed to prepare us for the story of Israel. Let's look at that now. We have Adam and Eve being created by God in 127. Can you see the verb here, bara? Can you see where my curse is moving? We'll look at a few slides. That's all. This is a software program. I don't have a slide deck today. But there's the Hebrew verb bara, and it's here in 127 of the creation of man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the image of God has something to do with male and female together in order to be profoundly seen. It's using the same verb that there is in the opening of Genesis 1.1. There is sheet bara, yes? In the beginning, he created. And then the subject of the creation is God. It's the following word. Later, we find God's people, Jacob, whose name was eventually changed to Israel when he wrestled with God in Genesis 32, also created using the exact same Hebrew verb again in Isaiah 43 and 1. Can you see it right here? But now says yod heh or Adonai, the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. Very important to understand that he is created. Think about it. He takes a person from the goyim, the nations, Avram, and he turns him into Jewish, covenantal, later Davidic flesh. And that is who we meet in Yeshua, the Messiah, Jewish, covenantal, Davidic flesh. It is a profound passage today, starting with Avram. And we get to the creation of Yaakov or Jacob precisely through this week's opening chapter of the Torah portion, involving the promise to Avram, becomes Abraham, as you heard, which is Howard's weekly Darash emphasized, is centered on Avraham obeying God, going out from his country to a promised land that God would show him. Now, does this story sound familiar? Yes. Let's go back to the story of Adam and Eve that prepares us for the story of Israel. In Genesis 1 through 3, most specifically, in the second story of creating, ordering the universe, found in Genesis 2-4 BFF. That doesn't mean Genesis 2-4 best friends forever. That means Genesis 2-4 B, the second half of Genesis 2-4, and FF means the following verses. 
we see the following. God created Adam. God placed the man he created in the garden of Aden, which was a gift of land with responsibilities for it. God gave Adam a commandment. What kind? Specifically about what he was allowed and not allowed to eat. Can you see kashrut coming? Yes? Immediately following the command, that is when God stated, it is not good for the man to be alone. He was alone with God, so he wasn't alone. It must not be good to be alone after you've received the commandments of God. It looks like you're going to need help to carry them out. And thus, he created an azer, a helper wholly corresponding to Adam, who would presumably help him to keep the commandments of God. And I say, please see Howard or Marcy or me, if you wish to see how many times this word is used of God as Israel's helper. So the woman is to a man what God is to Israel. And I give you this passage of Deuteronomy 33, 26. We use it in our premarital counseling. It's the passage where God rides across the skies to help his people. And I always ask the sisters in the audience, do you ride across the skies in a chariot to help your husband? And that's the answer we hear. And so that's a beautiful passage. And this is what a woman is to a man. The help that a man received from his father and mother was now to be found in the leaving of them and the cleaving to his wife. Can you see that Hanukkah play, Sylvia? Leave it to Cleaver. Some of you are old enough to get that. God blessed the couple and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. With what? God-loving people. Abraham, later, Fill the earth with what? People who follow the Derek Adonai, the way of the Lord. Fill and populate the earth with those people. And then what? Subdue it. Yes? Outside temptation and testing then came from a serpent, and deception and and disobedience followed. The outcome was exile from Aden, the land given as God's gift, and God's provision for eventual restoration to that land that in Genesis 3-5 is wholly centered on the seed of the woman that would be bruised on the heel by the serpent, but which seed would bruise the head of the serpent. Please here see the outstanding work of Jewish scholar of the Tanakh par excellence, James Kugel. His book is called Traditions of the Bible. It's this thick, this thick. It's $150. It has about $150 million worth of information in it. And of course, he says, it wasn't long after the text of Genesis 3.15 was written that somebody quickly concluded, wait a minute, this can't be about a great problem between human beings and snakes. This must be a symbol of something great that humanity is going to face. And it quickly became interpreted messianically. Kugel walks through all the Jewish literatures from the Tanakh all the way through to rabbinic literature, not missing anything, compiling all the evidence from all the literature about the tradition of any one topic that you look at. It's the greatest gift he has given to us. It's his magnum opus. We have a course at MSI on James Kugel. 
Do you now see the story of Israel in the Adam and Eve story? God created Jacob, beginning with Avram, who became Abraham, and I promise we'll get to him in this sermon, who was the first of the three patriarchs, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, a promised land, a seed that is descendants, a blessing, and being a blessing was involved. You should read Genesis 12, and you should compare Exodus 15, 17 through 18. There, in that passage, the word for planted a garden, east, you know, Eden, Aden, that word for planted is used in this passage when it says that God planted Israel in Zion, in Zion. God planted Israel. This is genius use of Hebrew vocabulary. Then what happens? Commandments were later given to Israel, 613 to be exact. You notice there's a passage that says Abraham somehow was keeping commandments, yes. Outside temptation and testing came, inside deception and disobedience followed. The outcome was exile from Israel and Jerusalem, the land given as God's gift, and then God's provision for eventual restoration to that land that is wholly centered on the seed of Abraham, the consummate seed promised there and referred to in 3.15 of Genesis, Yeshua the Messiah, who came as a lamb and will return as the lion of the tribe of Yehuda or Judah. You with me so far? You following along? Yes? We're at seven, continuing to make connections between the Adam and Eve story and the story of Israel to the person Abraham. It should also be observed that the emphasis on the barrenness of Abraham's wife Sarai, later Sarah, Genesis 11, 29, and 30, and Yitzhak's wife, Rebekah, Genesis 25, 20 through, 20 through 21, speaks to the need to trust God in order to fulfill the commandment to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. Also, both of these narratives feature struggles. The first between Abraham and Lot, the second between Jacob and Esau, both struggles end in what? Separation. Abraham must be separated from Lot, see those passages, and Jacob must be separated from Esau, see those passages. And it was Joel Kaminsky that said, the story of Cain and Avel, Cain and Abel, should have prepared you for that. So see how much the Jewish scholars see how Genesis early stories are, are already telling you something about what's coming. All of this separation prepares us for the separation of the line of promise from the line, listen, of self-seeking of good and blessing that we'll discuss in a few moments. One last footnote. This is something I remember Howard covering, but I think this is so worth seeing. You have to see this for yourself. Did you pay attention when Howard covered the Sefer Toledot? It's sometimes translated Book of the Generations. I'm going to give you a peek at it here in 5.1 of Genesis. And can you see it's lit up in yellow? So it's really clear. So what's in the top at Hebrew is Sefer, Toledot, like something like the book of the generations. Yes? And so this happens 10 times 
in the structure of the book of Genesis. Look at its genius. Follow the 10 occurrences. At Genesis 2-4, it's the Sefer Toledot of the heavens and the land. At 5-1, of Adam. Of 6-9, of Noah, or Noah. Of 10-1, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. At 11-10, it's Shem. And you know, that's where we get Shemitic people, Shemites, right? The only reason we say Semitic today instead of Shemitic is because Greek did not have an SH sound, I'm sorry to say. So we didn't carry down the sh, we went s, and that's how that happened. But this is the Shemitic people of Shem. And then we have at 1127, Terah. And this is Abraham's father, yes? And then we have the Sefer Toledot of Ishmael, Abraham's son by Hagar, and then at 2519, Yitzhak, the son of the promise of Genesis 18. And then at 36.1, we have Esau, uh, Yitzhak's elder son. And finally, at 37.2, we have Jacob. Note the purpose of these 10 markings in the text. When we see it, we go, number one, number two, we count them. The 10 Toledot formulae, Genesis here, show how the story of the Bible is going to quickly narrow from all of humanity to a people through whom all of humanity is going to be blessed. Of course, that people is Israel through the initially chosen person of Avram, whose name you heard in the reading today was changed to Avraham. But notice this, where is Terah and why have I put it in yellow? Notice when it comes to names, there are four above and four below. See Shem, and then Shem, Ham, and Japhet, and then Noach and Adam. That's the four above. Notice there are four below. Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, Yaakov. What does that, where is the position then of Terah? Smack in the center of the people. That's right, because he's central to Genesis 3.15, and he's central to fashioning the people Israel. Now, you have there Greek, yes? Did you see below the Hebrew there's some Greek? Did you see this? This mess? If you thought Hebrew was hard, try this, because it's all Greek to me. See it? Biblos Geneseos. Listen to this. The translation of Sefer Toledot from Hebrew to Greek is Biblos Geneseos. Why is that important to us? Here's why. Did you know there's an 11th use of the Toledot formula that ties the story of Yeshua back to these 10? These 10 tell the story from Adam through Israel. Guess who uses this? It's the opening two words of the good news according to Matat Yahu. Can you see it's the first two words? Biblos Geneseos. So I translated it for you as the Sefer Toledot of Yeshua, Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Did you ever know that Matthew is using the genealogy, nine chapters of which is in Chronicles, that most readers skip over because they think, what's the point of reading all those names? 
guess what? Those are the names of the descendants that'll be like the stars in the sky. Every genealogy is proof that God is carrying out his promise to Avram, Avraham. So here you have Matthew not only taking the nine chapters of genealogy in Chronicles, working out three sets of 14 generations to show Yeshua's genealogy using Chronicles, which is the last book of the Hebrew canon. And in comes the first book of the New Covenant canon, using that genealogy, forming a seamless whole between Genesis to Revelation. you got to see it to believe it. And why 3 by 14? We know there's more generations. We think it's because David in Hebrew is 6 plus 4 plus 6. No, 4 plus 6 plus 4. I'll get it right at some point. 14. David's name adds up to 14, and it's three letters, so he makes three sets of 14 generations to do what? It screams the message to the Jewish people that this one, Yeshua, is the permanent promised son of David, come as, you heard the Berit Hadashah passage, as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. In his reappearing, he will be the Lion of the tribe of Judah, will judge all nations, and will be just as he was expected by many in the first century. Is that a thing of beauty or what by Matit Yahu in Matthew 1? And then take some time today, look at Matthew 1 and 18. And notice it's used of Yeshua, Ben David, Ben Avraham. And notice the order that you see in 1, 1 and 18. It's David, Abraham, and then Abraham and David. So what frames it? David. Why? Permanent promised son of David. And note what's in the center. Abraham, Abraham. Why? It points back to this call of this person. And it's to the Jew first and then to look at us, Gentiles. Imagine us riding your tzitzit into this entity. Yeah, that sounds like Zechariah, doesn't it? So this is again what I mean by the beauty and genius of what is said and how it is said in the scriptures. Okay, so now getting to our intended focus on Avram. Uh, Abraham the Shabbat, note that the scripture chose to list 10 generations from Adam to Noah, and then 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. But when it comes to presenting the line of Abraham through his father, Terah, look at Genesis 11, 27 through 32, a careful reading of the text shows there's only eight names, breaking the pattern of 10. Why? Why so? As Sailhammer rightly noted, the text is slowing us down, allowing the narrative that develops to teach us something very important. What is it? Namely, that the central event in the coming story is the separation between the ninth child, the child of rushing God's promise by one's own actions, Ishmael, and the tenth child, the child of God's faithfulness to his promise 
to Avraham and Sarai that you're going to have a kid at your age despite of all the laughter. Thank you. There's a woman that knows where I'm going in the text. That's great. And Yitzhak's name means? There you go. But I didn't laugh. Is that in the text? But I didn't laugh. Oh, read the text. So by God's own timing, his own actions. Sailhammer notes that the difference is the attempt to grasp the blessing or good of life on one's own versus trusting God to provide it. Is there a lesson here already? You ever waiting on something? Anything big, something small, God's promised. You ever waiting on it and you can't wait any longer? And what do you do? You take action on your own. And what do you produce from that? Anybody ever guilty of that? Geez, honey, you should give the statistics on how many times I've done that in my life, yes? And then God has to work with that and bless that while he goes back to his original plan that we interfered with. Who are, who are we in history? Who are we in history right now, 21st century? Are we people helping the promise of God to materialize in the 21st century? Or are we the people in the narrative who are hindering God's promise from having its effect in the circles of influence it should be having its effect on? And how about this? In a very careful reading of the earlier Sefer Toledot involving Shem, the one above Ham, Shem, Yafet, go look at the list, the one just before Shem alone, in Genesis 10.25, we find the, statements, uh, the statement, two sons were born to Ever. One was named Peleg because in his days, the land was divided. Gee, that's changed, huh? And his brother's name was Yoktan. This is also about the division between one, the line of the promise and of being made a great nation by God and of having one's name be made great by God and of receiving God's blessing in order to be a blessing to all the nations. In contrast to two, the line which is focused on building its own promise building a great nation on its own, Babylon, making a great name for itself and not receiving God's blessing or being a blessing to the nations. Shem's name itself tells part of the story as it's also the word for name in Hebrew, yes? From Shem come two great lines of humanity into the world. Those who seek to make a great Shem name for themselves in the building of Babylon and those for whom God will make a great name for them in the call of Avram who becomes Avraham. And if that's not enough, in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, these two lines of humanity are ultimately and totally contrasted to each other in which two cities? Babylon and New Jerusalem. That whole book is about making sure you are aligned with the right line. Notice how the placement of the call of and promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, right after the dispersion of the nations at Babylon in chapter 11, portrays Avram's call 
as God's salvation in the midst of judgment. A careful reading of both the Noah narrative and the Avram narrative reveals many similarities and strongly shows that Avram, like Noah, marks a new beginning in God's original plan to bless all the nations. The promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is in fact the reiteration of God's blessing in Genesis 1.28, and this is very clear here in Genesis 12.3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth, including those who built Babylon, will be blessed. Then notice how today's Torah portion at 12.1 begins. You see what's lit up? Now the Lord said to Avram, these are the kinds of words addressed to later prophets of Israel. And that begs the question, who was Israel's first prophet and on whose word? Who was Israel's first prophet? Can anyone yell it out? It's acceptable. Thanks. Thanks for knowing. It says it right here. Genesis 27. Now then, return to man's wife, for he is a prophet. This is the story of Avimelech, Sarah being taken, because he pawns Sarah off as his what? So he doesn't know any better. God comes to him in a dream, makes him clear. What are you doing? And he says, what are you talking about? It's his sister. Boom. Return the man's wife, for he is, Avraham is a, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. He's the first prophet. So we go here. That immediately establishes Avram's credibility as the special person whom God would enter into a covenant relationship with later in chapter 15. These words in 15.1 are, in fact, the more formal address to a prophet of Israel. The word of the Lord came to Avram or happened to Avram, as Sam likes to teach. It's an event. The word of the Lord happens to the prophet. This called first prophet of God would have the central and profound role in the formation of God's people Israel and the producing of the seed of Genesis 3.15, as is made clear in Genesis 15 and the following chapters. So we're not going to read, of course, the chapter today. That'll be a homework assignment. You can read the whole Torah passage, and you can look at the notes that go with it. But in Genesis 12.1, we have God's command to Avram to what? Go forth from your country, your relatives, your father's house, to a land God would show him, as, as Howard has often preached. You can trace this go-forth theme from here on. It's one of the most insightful things you can do. You can even do it in English, go-forth, those two words, in the New American Standard, and that itself in English would be an incredible study. In this chapter at 12.1, God promised Avram a land, and at 12.2, that he would be built into a great nation via a seed or many descendants, as indicated in 12.7, that he would bless him, make his name great, he would be a blessing. Strikingly at 12.3, it is then made clear that God would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And we said that's all the families in the earth, including the ones scattered at Babel, Babel, Babylon. So most important then, look at 12.4. Avram is shown to obey God's command and go forth. This prepares us for what is said after God cuts the covenant with Avram in 15.6. Let's see if that passage is up. Yeah. Notice that most translations say, he believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. Yes? Yeah. 
you're going to see that I put he trusted in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So let's look at this. It prepares us for what is said after God cuts the covenant with Avram in 15.6 and when Avraham passes the major test of offering up his son Isaac in Genesis 22 as expressed in this passage. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have what? Done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Can you see where that story's going? You haven't withheld your son, your only son. Can you see where that story is going? I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that's on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Why? What's the text say? Because you have obeyed my voice. Do you know how central obedience is to the following of the Lord and Yeshua Messiah? Do you know when we say, and you shall love the Lord your God with the whole of your, with the whole of your, with the whole of your, you're agreeing that obedience marks your life. It's the character of your life. That's what being like Abraham is all about. So it's a story in which he exercises trust in God's promise and acts accordingly in obedience to all that God commands. John Samus and Daniel Towner's maxim from 1887 had to come straight from Abraham's story. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. The Hebrew word emanah, hear me here, and the Greek counterpart pistis, cannot and should not ever be reduced to mere belief or faith. I don't even like hearing that person's a believer or having faith. It's not strong enough. There's too much easy believism and cheap faith. Starting at Genesis 12, Avram is shown trusting God's promise and acting in obedience to whatever God commands. Note well, in a profound 2015 book on so-called faith, anyone that can afford it and is able to read it should read it. Teresa Morgan, an Anglican priest, historian, and classical scholar, opens her book on faith with the Avraham story and clearly demonstrates that Abraham exercised trust that produced trustworthiness. As part of a constellation of words that's best described as the kingdom of God. That is her own words. Included among these words are such things as love, covenant loyalty, chesed, faithfulness, trustworthiness, emunah, shalom, wholeness, completeness, soundness, sufficiency, satisfaction, harmony, peace. Shall I keep going? And righteousness. What is righteousness? Doing what's right in covenant relations at all times. As for Genesis 12, 7, it introduces the word seed, oftentimes translated as descendants into the Abraham story. It ties it back to the seed of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Learning the identity of the seed is one of the chief themes of the rest of the book of Bereshit. The ultimate conclusion comes here 
when you get one chapter away from the close of the book, the scepter, this should be eight, we'll go back. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a what? Lion's cub from the prey, my son. You've gone up, stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the what? The obedience of the nations. The obedience of the nations. Go look at Romans 1.5. It says Paul set out. His apostleship is going to secure the obedience of faithfulness of the nations. That's 1.5 of Romans. It's framed. 16.26 of Romans has the same exact phrase. The obedience of faithfulness of the nations. Who is going to do this? The one who is from the tribe of Judah. That's Yeshua. Lamb coming as lion. For the account of Abraham's entry into the land of Canaan, the promised land, it's selective. It names only three places. Shechem, see the passage, between Bethel and Ai, Genesis 12.8, and the Negev, Genesis 12.9. Umberto Casuto, the rabbi and sage of blessed memory who died in 1951, an astounding commentator on the Tanakh, observed that it can hardly be accidental that these are the same three locations visited by Jacob when he returned to Canaan from Haran. See Bereshit chapters 34 through 35. And this shows just how strongly Abraham was utilized by God to build the people Israel. We're close. This is what it's like to do biblical studies in the office. Yeah. And when we read this kind of stuff in the office... All right, I got to tell you, Howard and I just explode at coffee shops and reading this stuff. And so if you take the time to see this in the text and you ask yourself, what's the ramifications for how, we, how shall we then live? Trust me, you, you'll be on the ride of your life. For the rest of the chapter about Abraham and Egypt, suffice it to say that the parallels between the Abraham and Joseph story and then the parallels from that story and Yeshua's story are abounding. You can email me at this address if you're interested in the handout from Salehammer who shows all the parallels between the Joseph and Abraham story. So the rest of Bereshit 12 then prepares us for the rest of the entire book. The theme that emerges, Howard just covered this recently again, is that the promise to Abraham of the land, a seed, descendants, a blessing, and being a blessing was going to be put in jeopardy by the behavior of certain characters in the narrative. Who are we in the narrative? However, more powerfully, how it emphasizes this as well, thematic is the point in the next 38 chapters of Bereshit that no matter what, God always remains faithful to his word promise and himself enters into history to safeguard the promise. Human failure does not stand in the way of God's promise plan. Okay, so we're almost done, and then I have a huge challenge for us. So that said, let's be deeply encouraged in particular by the early example of Abraham's pattern of what? Trust, trustworthiness, and obedience it's the Derek Adonai, the way of the Lord. Abraham is strongly held up as an illustri illustrious, 
let's use the right English, ancestor in this passage. Do you remember this? By trust, Abraham did what? Obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By trust, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Yitzhak and Yaakov, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Is that the city we're hungry for today? Is that the one we're praying to come down from the heavens forever so that Yeshua can reign forever? Or are we very comfortable with the city? By trust, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. We're going to go to 19. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead... That's Abraham, right? Him as good as dead? We're only 60. We're not close to that, all right? We're born descendants as many of the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These, all of them, look at the list of people in this chapter, all died in trust, not having received the things promised. Is God patient? I'm thinking of teaching a course next year on God's patience. Why? On God's patience. Why? He waits millennia. He's patient with humanity for millennia to accomplish his purposes. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and what? Exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, new Jerusalem, heavenly city. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? He has prepared for them a city. We're not just looking at past. We're looking to take account of what's past so we have a vision of what's coming in the future and we live right in the present so that we get there. By trust, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in fact, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring will be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively, you know, figuratively speaking, we did receive him back. Can you believe how much that story connects to the Yeshua story? Well, know this. John Levinson, the Jewish scholar at Harvard University, who says, I don't think Yeshua is the Messiah, writes on these passages, writes on the resurrection, and said any Jew who looks at the story of Isaac and does not see the story of Yeshua in it is disingenuous because it can't be missed. What you do with it is something entirely different. Then you have to go all the way to 39 through 40. This is an amazing closing note for us. You go back and you read that entire passage about all those persons that are illustrious ancestors for us. And he says, and all of these, though commended through their trust, did not receive what was promised yet. Here's here's the closing argument there. Since God provided something better for us in the new covenant. 
And then the last word should not be perfect. It should say, so that apart from us, they should not be complete. We, in the new covenant, are going to complete what was started in Abraham. Jew as Jew, Gentile as Gentile, one in Messiah. That's astounding. All right, let's pray. So, Avino Malkeno, our Father, our King, we take this time today, we lay ourselves before you afresh as a congregation, and we ask that you would open our eyes and ears to see and hear what the Ruach is saying to us at this time in history. We pray we would be those that have an ear to hear and rise up and become even more useful to you in your 21st century history. And this we ask in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.